This week on Laser, we're joined by the aerospace engineering cast of the Technically Speaking podcast for an exciting story about the future of lighter-than-air airships for use in communications, earth and environmental science research, and for astronomy and planetary sciences research, similar to satellites. Then we have a story about a company planning to ramp up the global lithium production to meet demand for the planned Tesla Giga Battery Factory. This episode did come out a bit long. I think it clocks in at around 90 minutes, but it should be pretty worth it. Hi. Hey. Hey. Everybody here? Yeah, you're all here. I think so. Okay, I guess we should introduce each other to so our, for our voices. Um, I'm Cameron. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. Hi, everybody. I'm Chase. Yes. And, well, and also, I'm Joe. The other voice is Jacob. Uh, Jeff. Get that okay. out of the way. At, at some point, we're going to have to reference Ak Ak Macaque, because I'm pretty excited about that. I never read Ak Ak Macaque. I didn't either, but I I think we just need to plug it at some point. Okay. Well, <laughs> you can just plug it right now. You're talking about it. Oh, it's. Well, I, all I know is that based on the cover, it's about a monkey who flies an airship and smokes a cigar in an alternate world, 1944. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was pretty spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, is everybody ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Um, I've got yep. my bullet notes in front of me. But everybody, and welcome to Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. I'm Cameron Kopis. I'm a graduate student studying quantum computing at Arizona State University, and uh, my co-host is Chase. Say hi, hi. Chase. Hi. <laughs> uh, and today we have two guests with us. Uh, they're the hosts of the Technically Speaking podcast, and they are Joe Batwinis and Jacob Stump. Hello. Hey, everybody. So they run this podcast, Technically Speaking. It's all about, what would you say, engineering and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, science, technology, engineering, okay. all, all around, I guess. All right, mostly about uh, Elon Musk. Lots about Elon Musk. <laughs> Elon, a lot about Elon Musk. Elon Musk and 3D printing come up fairly often. Okay, all right. Yeah. I think we, we talk about other stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, but but we're both aerospace engineers, so our, our interests tend to be more focused on, you know, airplanes and cars and spaceships. So Elon Musk comes up a lot for those reasons. Well... Yeah. Uh, both of those things, are, are all three of those, are actually the reason we invited you guys today. Uh, first story <laughs> we're talking about is a story about airships. Woohoo! Yeah. All right. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty big airship fan. Airships are excited. great. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Chase and I actually did our, uh, what is it, senior design project on airships. Yep. Yeah, oh, the, yeah. The dry run for the capstone. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so that, that was kind of fun. Spent a semester doing that. Uh, the, but the paper we're talking about is titled Airships, A New Horizon for Science. Um, it's published in the archive, so it's a free paper. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And it was published through the Keck Institute for Space Studies, which is a Caltech, JPL, a bunch of other university collaboration. And so a bunch of their scientists uh, wrote a summary of the, or they investigated the scientific potential for airships in uh, today's, I don't know, what would we call it? Today's situation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Today's skies? I don't know. I don't know how to roll with that. There's only half listening. The world of tomorrow. The world of tomorrow. There you go. It's it's the world of today. (laughs) That was was bad. Cut that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we we named an entire episode something to that line, to that effect. Yeah, it was like the world of tomorrow, today, yesterday, or something. I don't know. Something like that. We never come up with very good names for our shows. (laughs) So I'm assuming all four of us know what airships are. Um, (laughs) Well, but our listeners may not. Yes, but the listeners may not. So what we are talking about specifically as an airship is a uh, a rigid or a semi-rigid, lighter-than-air aircraft. So it's not something like a blimp that's just a big balloon or a a weather balloon that is literally just a big balloon. (laughs) I just, I, wow, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm making this up as I go along, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think I, that's, that's an important uh, distinction to make, too. Not a lot of people are aware of that. Is, uh, I guess they, blimps, uh, blimps can be considered airships, but airships are not necessarily blimps because yeah, yeah, it's of that right. uh, rigid structure. Yeah. Pretty sure they devoted about five or six lines of dialogue in an episode of Archer to that distinction. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the big thing that separates a blimp from a balloon, though, is controllability. The fact that uh, an airship is by definition controllable you fly it yeah, whereas it a, a balloon like a weather balloon you know kind of has a similar role but it just flies along in in uh, stratospheric winds and whatnot that's true okay. hot air balloon right you can, <clears throat> you by can that definition hot air balloon up and down but that's about it right yeah you're pretty pretty uh at the mercy of wind <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to sponsor a weather balloon you don't see <laughs> a good year weather balloon over air stadiums <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah. Um, so the yeah the major difference is that airships have a or rigid and semi-rigid at least have a internal structure so that they stand up on their own even when they aren't full of gas. Um, so they land. Most popular example is probably the Hindenburg. Although <laughs> not not exactly a shining example of uh, engineering that you want to hold up uh, as a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't really want. It just had some uh, some bad paint. Hey, you know. hey it, it wasn't necessarily the engineer's fault. They filled it with the wrong gas. Well, they <laughs> and painted well, it with it, aluminum paint, right? It was well uh, that you know. Well, the material and, scientists. We'll blame it on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. But, fair enough. Yeah, no, that was. It was also the fact that they were uh, the 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 skin of the balloon was actually a was highly flammable as well. Yeah, right. it was something yeah. that was like intestines coated with yeah. a, a butane jelly to keep it soft. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, you know, yeah. not not really a uh, lot, lot of uh, bad ideas. But actually, when you said, you know, they filled it with the wrong gas, uh, we actually uh, designed our um, our senior design project our design project around using hydrogen because it was uh, the, the whole concept of the of our blimp was that you didn't vent the gas to uh, to land. You just compressed it. Right. Yeah. Mm. So as long as it's in, a, it's completely enclosed. Right. There shouldn't be a, 
risk for explosion or, or anything like that. It's just when you mix it with oxygen and, and a flame. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. It, it can work. It just needs to be properly yeah, you, you'd have to have a lot contained. Of, a lot of extra safety features just yeah. aside for that. But, you know, you get a lot more lift per volume. Yeah, well, yeah. you just... You just end up using components that are essentially certified for uh, like fuel usage, right? You you just get yeah. explosion proof co- explosion proof components, and you should be fine. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, the, a lot of optimization has been done to try to use helium in a way that makes it as effective as hydrogen, and that's why we see a lot of these newer airships now are actually heavier than air. They're not lighter than air, so they have to they have to have forward movement in order to generate enough lift to actually get off the ground. Yeah, like and, the. Uh... The, like the Lem V, the canceled project from last from this past year, um, uh, it's you know the that that kind of allows you to use the same amount of helium as you would have to use in hydrogen, but get the same amount of lift as you would if you did have the hydrogen. Yes, and it's not a significantly different design either. I mean, it's still a semi-rigid structure. You don't have to have uh, a full rigid skeleton, um, but it you know it presents its own challenges. I definitely recall seeing some designs like that when we were doing our research for that project because yeah. there was there was a there was a British military design I believe that operated on that principle of uh, it's not fully lighter than air it's just but it, it did require forward forward movement to take off and land. I think yeah, this yeah. one that was just canceled was uh, was Lockheed Martin. Um, I think it was Northrop Grumman and Hybrid Air Vehicles, and the oh, Hybrid Air Vehicles right. was a British company that. Yeah, may have, that, they may have been the one that you saw. They may have worked yeah, with a mm-hmm. prior prior uh, you know defense yeah. contractor or something. Yeah, I think they they just had a prototype from what I recall. Um, yeah, they were, they were trying yeah. to sell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think because of this, the Hindenburg and everybody got so scared about it. Uh, that's kind of what stopped airships from being popular over the last uh, sixty to seventy years. Well, yeah, I mean, it that... certainly created a stigma, but I think it's it's not just that; it's also that the development of the modern airliner happened, uh, and you could have fast fast transport across the ocean, even That's... faster than an uh, airship would get you. That's true. All right. So, so the use case of it has changed. Like the mission role, I guess you could say, of the of the high altitude blimp has gone from being transportation oriented to. Um, and I guess this is what this uh, this study is is arguing to almost observation and research oriented. Yes, yeah. So that's what they that's exactly what they investigated for this study uh, was they were looking specifically for scientific potential. Uh, so this doesn't really t- the paper doesn't really talk about any of the commercial uh, advantages that the airships would have. But well, I, well, I mean. It also doesn't really touch that much on the, the military use, which I think uh, is probably what will drive development on this program. Maybe it's, a little bit. Well, I mean, to have a, uh, a relatively much much less expensive in comparison to a spy satellite uh, mobile observation platform is is definitely going to be very attractive for you know DARPA and for the Department of Defense. Yeah, it's not just it's the a, fact that it's uh, cheaper than a satellite; it's also that it can. Uh, What's referred to as station keep. It can stay on station, stay in one place yeah, for an extended right. period of time, right? A satellite is going to be, it's going to pass over a certain area, but then it's going to go back around the other side of the planet. And yeah. you have to, and you have to wait until it gets back into orbit to get a, a second picture. Yeah, right. Where, uh, whereas a high altitude airship can just go to a target and sit above it and just have uh, what's what's it, what's the phrase? Uh, persistent surveillance. Yeah, yeah. Per, have persistence. Yeah, <clears throat> and 
And then not just that, but it's out of range. I guess the mission role is is peculiar because if we were to try to use a, a high altitude airship on a country that you know has advanced technology like like Russia or you know somewhere in Europe, well, they could shoot it out of the sky because they've got rockets and missiles that can go as high as the blimp is. But if you put it over you know Afghanistan or or Iraq where you have you're going against people or uh, an enemy where they're not necessarily going to have high altitude missiles, then it doesn't need to be protected from that. It just needs to stay high enough away from the the low and medium altitude missiles that they do have. So yeah. it fills a specific peculiar role that maybe is just convenient for this particular point in history. Um, yes. and, and I guess that's why it's had a hard time finding a place. You know, it's it, the funding for these different programs have kept running out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it sort of fills the niche right in between airplanes and satellites. Yeah, um, because you can put like everybody like we've been talking about the spy cameras on it. Um, but there I think... is also the uh, the cargo use too. Uh, they have the capability to lift a, a significant amount of cargo, and they don't need a runway like yes. a large mm-hmm. cargo aircraft would need. So the, I know yeah. that um, some South American countries have been looking into airships for cargo rolls yeah especially it would be very useful for uh, humanitarian aid too in places like mm-hmm. africa where there isn't a a runway necessarily where you need to drop right you don't need existing infrastructure to to land in an area yeah. you just need a clearing this is oh. spooky this is like it's directly from our report <laughs> <laughs> one one of the cool things that i thought was pretty neat from the lockheed martin uh project it's called isis integrated sensor as is structure um they they've developed a couple different prototypes and one of the neat little things that they had was they had these like feet that were on the bottom of the of the blimp and they could actually they could actually provide suction so that when you were landing like say say you got into your landing zone and you're near enough to the ground that you can start unloading things but you're in a high wind area or something Uh these feet would actually suction to the ground to keep the airship from blowing around without having to tether down so you could you could just suck yourself to the ground and not have to tie in any tethers it was pretty neat they have a video of it actually on youtube somewhere i haven't seen that that's cool that now, would, would that work on, like, grass or dirt or only for cement or that kind of thing? Do you know anything? No, it, the video was on dirt. It was on, wow. like, a, like, a salt lake, I think. So yeah, it I was... Seem, I seem to remember it could actually even work on water. That's amazing. Yeah, because it, it doesn't need to have, like, a, you know, it doesn't need to provide a vacuum. It doesn't need to really <laughs> suck down on there. It just needs to provide enough downforce to keep you from tipping over. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I guess we've talked a little bit about airships and how awesome they are. Uh, <laughs> well, we should uh, well, we should get into what the what the paper actually found. So what they were looking for was both low and high altitude applications for airships. Uh, again, specifically only scientific applications, and they categorized low altitude as less than forty thousand feet, and then high altitude as more than sixty thousand feet. So at that point, your in I think you're in the stratosphere at 65 or 60,000 feet, maybe close to 65. It's between 30 <laughs> and 60,000 feet for this to get into the stratosphere. Okay. According to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so this would be in the stratosphere, and uh, the advantages you have there is that then you're you're through most of the atmosphere, so you don't have as much air to bother with. But then you get a couple of extra problems. 
So if you're looking at the very high altitude uses, the things they talk about are earth and atmospheric science, where you can park an airship over a city, measure uh, emissions and air quality, carbon cycling, and coastal ecosystem monitoring. And then on the other side, that's looking down, looking up. They, they could be useful for or astrophysics and planetary science. When they talk about, uh, you could put something like a a telescope on one of these and have Hubble competitive imaging, hmm. which would be so, uh, so you're you're out you're high enough that you don't have to worry about I guess too much atmospheric lensing that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think you only have about thirty percent of the same atmosphere as you would down at at sea level, uh, so you get rid of most of the aberration caused by scattering or uh, atmospheric lensing, like you said. And you have the, the biggest advantage is that you don't actually have to uh, launch your telescope up into space, which is very expensive. Right. Yeah. And you could perform maintenance on it without having to launch anything into space. That's too. true. You could land it back down, um, control where it is in case you don't want it to, or you want it to stay in the same place. Although for Perfect. a telescope, that might be kind of be the opposite because you probably want to uh, <laughs> move that. Yeah, move it around to keep looking at the same spot so you don't get the Earth yeah. in the way. Yeah, I'd, I'd be concerned with just the the power required because a lot of these things are talking about using, you know, solar to just stay up there. Yeah, but the I feel like there's going to be a lot of wind to to fight in order to stay stay in position. So, blimps well, being it, as big as they are, there's a lot of drag to overcome. There is. There's a there's a yeah, pretty big amount of drag uh, for something that large. But I think the they did some some calculations, and uh, there are certain areas you can go to. Different latitudes have different wind speeds, per, depending on the season, and that's uh, pretty well known, I, I suppose. Yeah, so I guess you just stay out of the really windy area areas. Yeah, if you can do that. Uh, it's I said that over the South Pole, especially in the winter, is where the wind is the worst. It's above. Uh, normally, it's the wind is between 10 and 40 knots. Average is probably between 20 and 25, and down on the South Pole, it stays above 40 knots mm. all the time. So that's it would be hard to operate one of these down there, but otherwise right. uh, it might not be so difficult. Okay, yeah. I mean, 10 knots isn't anything. Well, the the paper has a couple different ideas that could reduce the, the uh, energy requirements, at least the onboard energy requirements for station keeping. They, they talk about tethering the the airship to a number of different things uh they they talk about tethering it to a ship uh in the ocean but then they also talk about tethering it to other balloons or other airships that are at a lower altitude and therefore might have a different wind vector to be able to take advantage of and there's even one little illustration on page 56 of the report where there's an airship at high altitudes that is being pushed by east easterly winds and then an aircraft that's tethered to the airship that's being pushed by westerly winds and it essentially allows them to reduce the lift requirements of the airship and reduce the station-keeping requirements by providing so- the, the two different um, wind vectors to fight each other, you know? Hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I wonder how safe it is to operate an, an airplane <laughs> with uh, something <laughs> tied to it pulling in the other direction. I, it's also a 10-kilometer-long tether. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jesus. as someone who as someone who builds airplanes, I want I'm going to have to say you would have to design the airplane completely differently <laughs> because that you don't design it to take loads in that direction. Like no. that's no. that's just not the way that it's designed to operate. I mean, it, all they really need is a weight and a parachute. They don't they don't really need an airplane to be there, but I, I don't know. I mean, I understand this is brainstorming. They're they're just they attended this conference and everybody just came up with different ideas and somebody put all the ideas into a paper. So yeah. It's it's hard to make fun of it's hard to make fun of them when we haven't really put in the the full thought that they have but it I seems like that poor. would be <laughs> <laughs> Seems like that would be a little bit of an overkill. There might be some other easier solutions especially when we're looking at low cost solutions overall anyway. Yes. Know, why pay for a UAV to be you know, a long endurance UAV just to be a break on your airship? That's true. Yeah, that uh the system of uh Tethering airships to other airships probably seems like it'd probably be the cheapest overall, but you'd have to do a lot of calculations to figure out the correct drag. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, tricky. But have you guess. guys heard of uh, Google's Project Loon? Yes, actually, that's in my my notes to talk about at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so this would be perfect for something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean they're they're just essentially using the up and down vertical controllability of a weather balloon, or at least their version of a weather balloon to handle all of their station keeping. Yes. So they, they're just going to go to different layers of the stratosphere to capture different directions of wind and allow them to go back and forth, I guess. But they're still not going to be, they're not going to be station keeping in the sense that we think of station keeping for military contexts. You know, they're going to be going over a swath of a- area, you know, thousands of mile long. We, we would want them to stay within an area, you know, tens of miles long. So maybe that just wouldn't work. That's true. Um, and when you're talking about military, you don't really have the budget constraints that scientific experiments usually do either. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be surprised. Lim V got canceled for budget constraints. Yeah, that's true. And I guess, uh, so did Chase. Oh yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But that's what happens. Uh, that's what, well, you cut your contract employees first, you know? (laughs) Right. So. I learned my lesson. <laughs> well, I guess actually we didn't explain what the Project Loon is. Um, yeah, I had to go look it up. I had no idea what it was. Oh, okay. So Project <laughs> Loon was Google's Not project bad. to bring internet service or yeah, internet service to unconnected areas of New Zealand. Um, I think it was just New Zealand. Do you they're anybody know otherwise? They're prototype. That's where they're testing it. Yeah, that's where they're currently testing it. And they they're they're still testing it there. I mean, I just saw an article this past week about it. Um, but their long term goal is that it would provide internet access to third world countries and um, areas where right now essentially cellular is the base form of internet. Yeah. So. And this would uh, reduce the need for cell towers. Basically, if everybody could have uh, right. almost almost like satellite phones, but without the cost of a satellite phone. Yep. Because <laughs> nobody really wants to pay, what I think I looked at one that was three hundred dollars a month for the yeah very basic. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's Plus, one, that's one thing that an airship could do just on an emergency basis, right? So let's say you have a natural disaster of some sort knocks out all your cell communications in an area, you could have an airship loaded with cellular cellular antennas just fly over an area and provide communication capability for a uh, disaster hit area. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be yeah. pretty cool. And, and the big thing about this new generation of, 
of uh, airships is that they're all unmanned, or at least the, all the ones that I've seen are unmanned or optionally manned, I guess. But yeah. that allows you to keep longer surveillance or longer persistence. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, the the secret thinking. ultimatum is coming out. Okay, yeah, Big Brother's ultimate, watching. Ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> but station keep for a longer time. So for, in those situations, you wouldn't want a human pilot sitting up there saying, well... I'm kind of hungry, so this disaster area has got to lose cell phone service for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or Well, even if there was a pilot, though, because these things have such a, a large uh, mass, I'm sure you could keep enough food up there for a month. Or, I mean, look at uh, Mark well, Kelly's going to be on the ISS for a year. Yeah, but at the same time, you don't want to, like, especially if you're if the pilot is there to provide, like, support to a disaster stricken area you don't want like a guy up there stuck you know going stir crazy for a month there is like you know <laughs> that's true it's not 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 necessary not if it's not necessary if it's not necessary right. you don't do it you know and, so. and the size the size of an airship that would be required to provide <clears throat> just cellular service is is pretty small compared to the size of an airship that would be required to carry people especially yeah, people for a month for that application it could be just a tethered balloon for all that matter yeah. yeah, yeah, and actually, so, I mean, they think in their in their final recommendations, they they should they said that for the very high altitude and long term uh, single location, that a, an aerostat would be the most useful thing, which is just like we've been talking about, like a balloon that's tethered to the ground or tethered to a boat or something. Yeah, and that's not not fully rigid, but it's a. Uh, might not even be partially rigid, so it could be more like a blimp. Not as controllable as, as an airship, typically. So. Right, and if they're tethered, they don't really need to be yeah. controlled. You can just pull the rope in a little bit if you need to bring it back down. Right. I like that they're also recommending a uh, like a like an X-Prize-style challenge to yeah. overcome some of these challenges in the paper. See, I feel like the X-Prize... I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't think you can offer enough money to make it worthwhile. Well, I don't know I, how, how expensive an airship is to build, though. I was reading some of those other articles that were attached, not necessarily the paper, but they were they were estimating this, like the total cost to launch one at uh, somewhere between 50 and $100 million. So <laughs> for some some amount of perspective, the LEMV, I'm uh, looking at the Wikipedia page, Mm-hmm. Uh, unit costs of around 154 million dollars, with 517 million in. Oh no, that's that's unit costs. So depending on uh, whatever you that's, stick in it, that's yeah, 154 that's phrased, to 500. So 500 is horribly. all your payload. What's that? <laughs> it's phrased horribly on the Wikipedia yeah. page. Yeah, 154 is. million was definitely spent on the development of the one production aircraft that they made. Yeah, the one. And, and it wasn't. It was a full-scale prototype. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a uh, you know a, a demonstrator. It was a. It was a full-scale production prototype. Five hundred and seventeen million was like the estimated development cost of all of the future variations because they were going to do. They were going to do some crazy stuff on this. So, but one hundred and fifty million for a failed project. <laughs> so but I think that's a lot of that is is uh, not for the same application necessarily. No, not at all. Because that mean, would have was, been a was, much more complicated structure than you... Just reading reading the stuff that was coming out of Aviation Week, I mean, they were trying to do everything with this, this one airship. You know, they were trying to do so many, fill so many mission roles that it was falling into the same problem that the Joint Strike Fighter falls into, where 
(laughs) When you try to make it do everything, it's not going to do any one thing great, but it's going to be just as expensive as all as different aircraft that can do each of those things individually. Yeah. Right. So getting back to the X Prize, right? So the Ansari X Prize for the the spacecraft, right? It only awarded a ten million dollar prize. Yeah. It's it's not a lot. But how much do you think the the Virgin and the SpaceX cost flights cost? You know, probably significantly more more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the prize was sure. is more of a of a uh, incentive than an actual like means to an end. Yes. Obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not going to recoup your costs, but it is going to say, oh look, hey look, we won the uh, the SpaceX prize and uh, true. true or the Airship X prize. So in the actual report, they have. Uh, some average or some estimated costs and a typical satellite observatory costs between 0.1 and 3 billion dollars united states dollars and a full-scale isis airship is between 10 and 100 million u.s dollars that's a pretty big range though 0.1 and 3 3 billion (laughs) (laughs) that's 100 million to 3 billion dollars yes but the airships are the, the maximum the air, of that. The, the airships, well, you know, that's what they're estimating in this paper. Of course. So then they're be, always going to be optimistic. Well, <laughs> and, there's, and there's going to be, you know, development costs and all that, you know, all that good stuff. <clears throat> good, good stuff. But so, yeah, it, I would, I would probably say 150 million dollars, like they, like they had for that, uh, for that LEMV unit. It's probably a, uh, probably a pretty reasonable guess. Yeah, at least for the first one. And then maybe yeah. you could do them cheaper yeah. later after the first. Yeah, maybe, no, that's maybe. always the hope, right? Your your unit cost is going to go down after yeah. your yeah, yeah, exactly. Once you, once you got it all worked out. So I guess so. we could spend a little bit of time talking about uh, what would actually make these airships cost all that much. So the the engineering problems you have with building something like this. Um, and I kind of want to start off with the hydrogen versus helium. Again, I, I know we touched on that earlier. Well, but... the thing about hydrogen is it's going to be cheaper than helium, where the U.S. helium reserves are pretty depleted, as I recall, right? Yeah, I've, I've heard that the, we're running low on helium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that as well. So we're, I think we're about to run out in the next couple of years, the United States helium reserve, and that's where most of the helium in the world has been coming from, uh, because in, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, the United States government just went bananas yeah they yeah i think somewhere in the united states is the largest helium best place to get helium in the world so they just collected as much of it as they could and they held on to it because they Mm. thought airships were going to be the next big thing and then uh jets took off instead right (laughs) but ever since then they started or in some time later on they started selling that and they're selling it at way below cost Mm. Right. So the government Which is why is, we're still filling balloons for birthday parties with it. Yes. And it's about to run out. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of have an environmental problem with helium. I know it's not like a greenhouse gas or anything, but there's a very, very limited amount of helium on the Earth. And once it's gone, it's all gone. So really? Is there no way to get is, – is there no way to, like, make new – there is know, helium we, mines, but it takes millions of years because the the way we make helium is through alpha particle decay. So it's it's radioactive uh, elements underground. When they decay, each uh, alpha particle decay is one helium atom. It picks up two electrons and becomes a helium atom. 
Hmm. So the way where you mine helium is underground. There's these big areas with, uh, I don't know, uranium or whatever radioactive element. And over the billions of years as they've been decaying. I mean, we could make it through nuclear fusion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then we, we, yeah. Just get a bunch of nuclear power plants to make helium. Just, just like, yeah. <laughs> Still, I think that's very slow. Because you have to think that <clears throat> yeah. like, there's only only one helium atom per decay, or per yeah. alpha particle decay. Yeah. So it takes yeah. a long time to build up helium. Yeah. So the so the so the base concept is that just you you have to find a, uh, a either you have to use helium more sparingly as an, to make it an effective lift gas, or you have to find, try to find a different lift gas. Yep. So like hydrogen. Like, like hydrogen. hydrogen. Which so the, uh, there's a huge stigma associated with that, and that's the biggest problem with using hydrogen in, in like an airship i mean it just immediately calls to mind uh, associations with the hindenburg right so i think so too and hydrogen i mean legitimately is dangerous i mean we kind yeah, of seem no. to be playing it down but it's it is explosive and uh but dangerous. so is jet fuel but right? so, yeah. yeah exactly so let's not let's not discount the fact that jet fuel explodes too so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything everything's trying to kill you that's true right <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, but if you could find another gas that's also lighter, mo- mostly lighter than air, you know. Although that's that's tough because really. Well, you only have so many choices, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't have you don't have a yeah. lot, yeah. <laughs> not a lot there. You can't really use uh, lithium or. Yeah, they get. Uh, I mean, what? Once you get to uh, nitrogen, you're pretty much. That's yeah, it's, it's after that it's <laughs> curtains. Yeah. So you, got, you got six elements to pick from. Right? <laughs> Yeah, and and only two of them are gases. Two of, yeah, two of them aren't <laughs> gas. Lithium and beryllium aren't gas. Boron. Oh, that's right. Carbon's not gas either. So. Nope. Carbon is not. <laughs> so you've got hydrogen, helium, and that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hydrogen. hydrogen. Yeah. So your only options. <laughs> Wait, nitrogen's not though. Nitrogen. Well, nitrogen already nitrogen. makes up most of the atmosphere, right? So if you're mm. trying to displace the, you're trying, you're relying on right. buoyancy, it, it, displacing air. So, it, so you'd be go, just rising very, very slowly. Well, you would also, you'd, all, you'd <laughs> right. have to have a, you'd have to have a huge, huge volume. Huge. You, it would make the the size of your airship have to expand. It, it just a lot. Yeah, because you're only lifting against yeah. the yeah, like, so what, just, 18% of the atmosphere that, or something. That's yeah, that's oxygen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, well, that's not nitrogen. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's something like. A kilogram of mass lifted with helium needs one cubic meter of helium gas in order to, and that's at sea level. It requires more than that as you get further up. Uh, uh-huh. Since we're talking about high altitude stratosphere, the air is already it's like 30 times thinner. Mm-hmm. So even up there, you're going to need a lot more volume than. At what point does gravitational does like a gravitational effects stop? Uh... Stop being an issue. Not for not, a very long not, way. I mean, not the, not until you develop an orbital velocity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The out. I mean, gravity doesn't stop pulling just because you're higher in the air. It's the yeah. the only reason why microgravity exists on on the International Space Station is because they're moving at ten thousand miles an hour. They're Fair just enough. falling. They're falling the whole time. They're not actually out of the effects of gravity. Exactly. Okay. I mean, even the moon is still has its gra- Earth's gravity. <laughs> right. So there's that, uh, and we can we can always we can make more hydrogen on Earth too pretty easily. We just do uh, water electrolysis. Right, we can just break it off things. Yeah, so I think 
regardless of what we do, helium is going to be way, way more expensive, even if we aren't don't suddenly have a brand new use for it that needs millions of cubic meters per year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think I think hydrogen is going to be the answer. I think we're going to have to, if we wanted to pursue airships on a big scale, we'd have to go back to hydrogen. We would just have to be careful about our component selection, make sure we are careful about static electricity discharge. Yeah. Uh, which the I same as, we, same as we are on aircraft now, right? I mean, yeah, aircraft I mean, now have static wicks to discharge at static electricity, and they have explosion-proof components so that you don't blow up your gas tanks because there's components in the gas tanks. Um, so if we just follow all those same precautions, I think we could be okay. I think it might work out, yeah. Especially since, you know, you don't have to go – I mean, obviously you don't want your thing to blow up, but, I mean, they won't uh, – you don't have to pursue, like, redundant safety systems as much – a, from a political standpoint, because they're, the airship itself is unmanned. Well, so, for an unmanned system, yeah. 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 For, an unmanned, for an unmanned airship, for just doing surveillance-type activities or monitoring-type act activities, you wouldn't have to worry about it as much. Yeah, but no, I'm sorry. if you wanted I mean, to do manned, air, manned airships, you'd have yes, to start paying yes. But, but personally, but, I would love to go on an air cruise. Me too. Oh, yeah. You know? It would be great. Yeah, yeah, I love, the idea, awesome. I love was, the idea of a cruise ship-type application. Well, that was that was actually yeah. one of the the applications that we looked at in our in our report and that ca- that uh, senior project was basically you know you could make a lot you could make a lot of money uh, selling just air tours yeah you know, kind of like, like do it like glass <laughs> do it do it glass bottom boat style you know? oh, man <clears throat> yeah I, carnival air tours or the I Disney. just think about this yeah I just think about that scene in Indiana Jones where they're riding the airship yeah yeah and, exactly and it, it's like this big restaurant like. <laughs> area yeah. man that looks awesome yeah. yeah you don't have to worry about oh i want to get the the uh, emergency exit lane so i have two more inches of leg room <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean on the other hand you know you would be in the air for significantly longer that's right, true that's why that's it's more about the it's more it's, about the journey right it's it's yeah, not it's, about it's the, the, it's the journey not the destination yep even all right after the helium and hydrogen there are still some other problems. Uh, we talked about how to manage the wind earlier, but there is also the fact that uh, when you're up that high for high altitude, the, there's very, the air is very cold. Uh, it's going to be an average temperature of minus 55 degrees Celsius, and the low is minus 79 degrees Celsius. So it's pretty a cold. lot below, yeah, it's pretty cold, a lot below the freezing temperature of water, so you have to worry about condensation building up and uh, how your equipment will operate at that temperature. Yeah. I mean, as long as as long as you keep everything dry, your electronic components really aren't going to care. I mean, it, well, that, stuff well, like well L- LEDs it. might work differently at those things. You can get um, uh, sparking hazards when air density gets low. You can have sparks jumping places you don't want them to because uh, the dielectric constant of the air is so much higher. Right. So you can you can get shorts where you didn't think you'd get a short when you get to high altitude. Gotcha. You probably just want to start. You probably want to use uh, the same kind of. Uh, I, I would call them unsophisticated uh, electronic components, like they'd use in like uh, satellites. That's true. I mean, yeah. Like you know, like <laughs> or the, the on the big, space the, station. Like right. the big, the big blocky, uh, heavily radiation shielded stuff from back from the seventies. You know, so it's like you know you're, you're <laughs> you have to you'll have to accept that your electronic components are going to have to be bigger, but they'll be less. Well, and it's not like that's. It's not like this is a problem that people haven't uh, tackled before, right? Yeah, I mean, the exactly. SR-71 flew very high. The U-2 flies very high. Yeah. Um, you know, we already have aircraft operating at high altitude. So, yeah. 
these are problems that have been encountered before. Okay. And, you, and it's like so you just you just take uh you just take technology from the high altitude aircraft. You take technology from satellite from what we know from satellites. Right. And that right. That just helps. And, you and a lot of that's going to be commercial off the shelf at this point. And there yeah. there's so many. I mean, heck, you can you can build with your university. You can build a nanosat that you can launch for ten thousand dollars on the on the back of a Russian rocket using completely commercial off the shelf equipment. And yeah, it's, it's it's more expensive than it's more expensive than let's say if you bought a, a micro SD card um, from Best Buy, it might only cost fifteen dollars. But when you buy an aerospace rated micro SD card, it's one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. It's it's a lot more expensive, but it's still within the range of you know feasibility. Uh, one of the uni- the university I did my master's at, they did a feasibility study on building a nanosat, so they were able to get budget for ten thousand dollars launch costs, but then they had to budget out um, how much it was going to cost for them to build the nanosat, and they estimated that depending on you know what they wanted it to do, that they could build one for fifty thousand dollars, which is really cheap when you think about it. Granted, they were using a lot of unpaid labor in the form of graduate assistance, but <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, since we've been talking about the cold, we also have the opposite problem where if you're up that high, you get, uh, not very much heat transfer. So if your equipment starts to heat up, it's not going to cool down because there's no air molecules or there are fewer air molecules to bounce off of it and take the heat away. Right. So it, you can, in, in that situation, I mean, that's not, uh, you know, it's the same. You can again go to your high altitude aircraft, and you can, you know, you can pressurize a, an area, right? Yeah, yeah. So that would be useful. And get more air. It. Although when you pressurize it, then you're increasing the the weight of your ship, right. the mass Taking of your ship. True. Lift. True. So oh yeah, you, all this is gonna add. To look, all this is gonna add weight. Oh yeah. Right. Which is which is gonna be heavier, adding a liquid cooling system or adding a pressurization gas cooling system? It's hard right, to say. Yeah, satellites satellites use pretty lightweight liquid cooling. For uh, certain components, like like the solar panels, I know have some like what are they? I think they use the alcohol or some of some sort as the liquid that transfers the heat. Huh. The the electronics behind the satellite panels can get pretty, or sorry, the solar panels can get pretty hot. That makes sense. I mean, the solar panels are that's their that's their job, right? To absorb right. energy from the sun. <laughs> okay. And then same problem in space, yeah, because there's no air molecules to take the heat away. It just kind of builds up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and the next thing I have on my bullet list is the uh, the radiation. So you have to deal with the the atmosphere actually filters out a lot of our solar radiation so that uh, we only get sunburns instead of dying <laughs> instantly when we go outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the solar radiation up there, that's ionizing radiation, is going to be 25 to 40% higher, and then the UV radiation is even higher than that. Mm. So Sunlight. we'll have to... Very yeah. strong sunglasses, yeah. And they have to worry about well, materials for the outside that are more uh, more shielded. Again, definitely. similar to satellites. Don't they have a yeah. UV? Don't they have UV re- resistant like paints and stuff that you can just coat everything? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think uh, mylar was is pretty uh, UV safe too. I feel like we looked into that when we did this report before, but I can't <laughs> be sure. It's been a few years, and a was lot that, of years. Yeah. Don't they wrap a lot of satellites in mylar? Or no, rather no, than like Capton. Capton? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Capton. Yeah, Capton. Which I actually didn't think about. Yeah, Capton might be useful. Capton, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the only issue with paint on a blimp, right, is you have a lot of surface area to cover, and that, yeah. that, that weight adds up. Adds <laughs> well, up yeah. 
But I'd, be, I'd, say, I'd say the same thing about coding the entire thing with Mylar or Kapton. Yeah. You know, well, you could make the you could make the blimp itself out of Mylar, right? That could be your outer skin. Which mm-hmm. uh-huh. that'd be useful for. I think uh-huh. that's what. Uh, Just like a Mylar balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, yeah. Fair enough. So. And I'm sure, and we already have a lot of these materials for weather balloons, even though their their goal mm-hmm. is to just go up very high and then pop and then fall back down, but <laughs> or other other high altitude balloons. So uh, it all exists. It's just these are some of the concerns. One other concern is is uh, leakage rate because weather balloons a lot of times they don't they don't come out of the sky necessarily because they pop, but because by the time they get up to high altitude, the leakage rate the molecules start separating so much in the mylar that the leakage rate of the gas inside becomes high enough to eventually bring it down so that it's not producing enough lift anymore yeah that's so true. well that might be we're, if we're looking might... at really high altitudes then that's another material science question for us if we're working with something like hydrogen though we're probably already concerned about the leakage <clears throat> yeah it'll probably have to be something that's a much better seal than uh mylar than mylar yeah huh well you're you're um for a rigid airship Right, you'd probably have your your frame and then a mylar wrapped frame, but the the hydrogen is going to be contained in balloons inside the frame, right? You wouldn't, yeah. yes, you wouldn't you would, fill you, the actual just... balloon itself or the airship itself with uh, hydrogen. It would be within its own bladders inside that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, LMV LMV was was a semi was a non rigid um, airship, and it was it was filled. I think it probably did have separate. It probably had bladder separations between different parts of the uh, frame. But um, I mean, if you watch the videos of it, it was undulating all over the place. So it looked more like a blimp than a than an airship. No, it looked more like a balloon than an airship. Oh, I mean, it, it, the skin was moving all over the place. Oh, okay, interesting. All right. Well, let's yeah, because they use they use the balloons to control altitude, but you can. Just like you were saying, you can compress the hydrogen back into a, a pressurized tank, and then you'll descend or release yeah, it. Yeah. And climb. Yeah. Whereas LMV just used forward speed to control altitude, right? Yeah. Just yeah. Like an and, and and vectored thrusters, like all of the all of the um, the I guess they were prop fans or not prop fans, mm-hmm. but they were uh, ducted fans. Four yeah. ducted fans. They could just articulate and point in any direction, so they could actually point them straight up if they wanted to. They were pretty teeny though compared to the size of the whole thing. I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure they weren't really providing a whole lot of lift if they pointed straight up. That's yeah. stubby little wings with stubby little fans and. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I done? think we're all fans though, right? I mean, I think we can all see a usage. Absolutely. I'm, I'm oh in. yeah, no, for sure. I'm, I'm very excited about the airships being a comeback. That's. Yeah. I am. All... I am all in for an airship tour when It'll that make... becomes available. It'll make all of my steampunk gear seem less ridiculous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so we're all in on how cool this is. Uh, there are yeah. going to be some in- engineering challenges for sure. I think and, we can agree that it's rad. But yeah, yeah. definitely rad. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be cool. I, well, hope they, I, hope, I hope it doesn't stall out in development. I hope they can keep their funding going. Oh, I don't that think aviation th- pun. Or they can get some fun, <laughs> some funding, whatever. Get some funding, yeah. Well, if somebody funds this uh, this prize was, that they're talking about, then yeah. Yeah. So, man, and, where's where's an eccentric billionaire when you need one? I know. 
there actually was an, an airship prize a few years ago. It was the Airship Z prize or something. But it had some silly requirements, and there was never enough money in it because nobody really sponsored it. So it, it's gone. The website's taken down and everything. No, that's a bummer. So, uh, I, think, I think they're still on Twitter, though. Uh, but on the other hand, and we, but turning to other projects that eccentric billionaires are going towards. That's true. Yeah. All right. I found our transition. That was good. Boom. <laughs> uh, I actually can't stick around for this. I have to go to dinner with my family. Okay. So I hope you all can carry on without me. Uh, you guys, it's been really fun to work with you guys. Thank you so much for coming down the program. Yeah, we'll have to yeah. bring you guys onto our show one time. Or, <laughs> or maybe split it up so we can get double – Double the, you know, kill two birds with one stone, two episodes with one stone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, feel free. All right. All right. Well, I'll see you guys right later. Um, see you around, Cameron. All okay. Right. Bye, Chase. Bye. Yeah. Later. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. I didn't and know now. he had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Who goes to dinner? Gosh. <laughs> right. Well, I think for him, it's it's kind of the middle time. So I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. Is he's in? Where is he? No, this is this is these are the challenges of podcasting. Yeah, yeah. We had three different time zones today, so it's kind of <laughs> kind of the problem. Yeah, I guess you are you guys. You're both in uh, Arizona, you said, well, right? Well, I'm in Arizona, but he's in uh, Montana or something on vacation oh. with his with his family. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. So oh. it's it's like six fifteen or something there now. I think. Yeah. Dang. Although I, it's. What eight fifteen? We're in Florida. Yeah, yeah, and I and I have to be at work at six a.m. tomorrow. Awesome. Well, just then, like uh, every day. <laughs> we'll try. To, okay, we can try to wrap this up pretty quick. Did you guys read this story? Uh, I looked through the articles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah, I pulled up the articles and skimmed through them. Okay. Awesome. So the next story is uh, an article titled Lithium Provider Chases Tesla's Bold Battery Plan. It was published by Erica Guise in the New York Times on March 16th of 2014. And the, the article is about a company called Symbol, S-I-M-B-O-L. And they are in Southern California. And what they want to do is produce uh, a lot more lithium for lithium batteries, uh, specifically since... The Tesla Motor Company has been talking about building this uh, giga battery plant that's going to make quite a few lithium-ion batteries. Or are they, are they lithium polymer? Um, I really don't know. I think they're lithium-ion. All right. Either way, they're lithium batteries for <laughs> for the the Tesla cars. So, well, it's a running joke on technically speaking that we always end up talking about elon musk so. <laughs> even when you're not on your own podcast <laughs> apparently even on when we're on our own podcast yeah sorry yeah so good yeah. stuff yeah um and all i was gonna say was the the gigafactory as it's come to be known is just going to be kind of a huge car factory that's also going to produce batteries on site oh is it and i thought it was a separate battery factory for whatever yeah, that's what i thought too the the gigafactory was supposed to be and if this is the same story that I'm thinking of or that 
that I saw for the Gigafactory. Yeah, I mean, it looks like that. It looks like it is. Okay. Um, they're they're going to be doing. Maybe they'll just be doing final assembly of the batteries at their site. I don't know. But but they the idea was that it was going to incorporate a large portion of the battery life cycle on site for for the car at the car uh, factory as well, which is something that's not necessarily that crazy because already um, in automobile production there are suppliers that live on site. So like a big a big producer like GM will have a certain uh, area of their factory that they rent out to other suppliers so that if they have a supplier problem, you know, let's say that somebody who makes a door panel for a GM vehicle, mm-hmm. um, they've provided a door panel that is not to spec. It's bent to the wrong radius or something like that. Well, GM doesn't then have to go to another state and deal with them. They don't even have to go to another town. They just go to a different area of their building and they say, hey, uh, there's a problem <laughs> with this part you gave us. Can you fix it? And, they, and they've got the materials there on site to be able to do that. So it's, it's a kind of a, an aspect of lean manufacturing where you try to incorporate as much of your design life, as much of your production life cycle as you can on site. And it makes sense when it comes to electric cars to have your battery production on site because it is such a huge portion of the overall cost of the vehicle. I mean, it, it was never before that the storage, you know, gasoline was never a huge cost to the vehicle for, yeah. for automobiles because it, they never had gasoline in them. So it's it's totally different in terms of how to think about it from a manufacturability standpoint because in order to, to affect the cost of the vehicle and lower the cost of the vehicle more effectively, you've got to control a totally different part of the manufacturing life cycle than you ever had to before. Huh. So it makes sense to put them to co-locate those two, to co-locate the battery production on, on the same facility as the uh, yeah. automobile production. Yeah. If, they want to, sense. if they want to hit their target of selling their $35,000 electric car for everybody, electric car, um, they're going to have to bring down the, the cost battery of batteries. Cost significantly. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and Elon Musk has admitted that, you know, they, they know that, the batteries just cost too much. So either in order to sell a car that everybody will buy, um, they either have to, well, they, they either have to bring the battery cost down or they have to significantly sacrifice range and they're not willing, they're not willing to sacrifice range, right? They have a, a Tesla standard, so to speak, of being able to go a, a reasonable, a good distance on your battery charge. Uh-huh. Otherwise nobody's going to want the car. Right. Yeah. People already make enough jokes about it that they don't need to, uh, to give them a reason <laughs> I mean, to. I mean, I drive an electric car, and it has an 80-mile range, which is enough for me okay. uh, for most days. I have a gas car, too, which provides you know backup, but um, the 80 miles is enough for most days. Tesla's idea is that you don't need the gas car. The electric car will always be enough between their long-range battery and their supercharger network. Okay. So in order to do that, they have to bring down battery costs. Yes, so it makes absolutely. sense they want to do this. Absolutely. That's kind of the the manufacturing way is kind of the opposite of uh, <laughs> almost everybody else. I mean, if you look at most of the uh, aerospace stuff or especially electronics, I mean, one part is built in China, it's designed in California, and then it's shipped well, to another with, country to be assembled. And... I think with, you know, especially uh, aerospace, a lot of that is politics. Okay. Um, so programs like joint strike fighter right they're built everywhere and then they assemble them in one spot it's to yeah. get as many uh representatives and senators in your pocket as you can right like oh yeah we built 
this flap in your district, so <laughs> vote for the JSF, right? Yeah, that makes or, sense. Or even even Boeing, right? Um, uh, the seven eight seven is it the fuselage that's built? No, the wings. Something's built in like Korea or something or Japan. I forget. I think it's the but, horizontal stabilizers. Is that what it is? Okay. Anyway, they build components all over the place in like technology exchanges, um, and so somebody says, "Hey." Uh, we'll buy 100 787s or whatever, uh, but we want to build part of it in our country. Okay. Yep. So they say, okay, fine. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's how the cost gets out of control, too, with a lot of these military projects, is that they're they're trying to fill the pockets of so many different people at the same time that you know suddenly the individual component costs get high. And, and it, I mean, it, it, it's basic... Well, no, I wouldn't say basic, but it's it's things it's lessons that we have learned over the course of the past fifty years of how to not make an affordable program. You know, right? Because now yeah, you're incurring all these shipping costs right. in between every step. I was reading an article today in the Aviation Week about uh, Mitsubishi's building their new Mitsubishi regional jet. And they're talking about building it in like a hundred different factories and then bringing it all into one spot for final assembly. It's like, Jeez. what are you doing? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all that they have all these existing factories that they want to build. All right. Well, whatever. As long as they uh, they're willing to pay for it, I guess. Well, that's yeah. the thing. Like, you got to meet an ultimate bottom line. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, we're turning your chemistry story into a manufacturing story. That's okay. It's uh, you guys have an interesting insight that I don't. We we so. have a tendency to do that. <laughs> Everything falls back to manufacturing. <laughs> yeah. So so the big problem with the the lithium batteries is that in all of these batteries that Tesla wants to build to power all these cars. Uh, don't exist. Nobody can make this many batteries in the world right now. Right now, all of the 35% of the lithium produced in the world is used for batteries, and that's mostly just for cell phones and laptops and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, only there are only a few electric cars that really have lithium batteries. I don't know what what the normal battery in a car is. It's not still lead acid, but it's. Uh... I think I think nowadays they're almost all lithium, but they did used to be nickel metal hydride. Okay, all right. Uh, and I think the Prius still uses nickel metal hydride. Uh, batteries. I don't think oh. they've switched to lithium. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Uh, but so, the electric cars, you can't get the range and the dense, the energy density you need out of anything other than lithium. Yeah. So that's the reason why we're using this is lithium has the absolute highest energy density, but lithium batteries do. So basically, we, the first thing we need to make all these batteries is we need to be able to make that much lithium. Um, and it's not like it's not as easy to mine as most most minerals are, or most metals are. So the the Tesla plant, they want to make, they're calling it the Giga Battery Factory because they want to make uh, 30 gigawatt hours of batteries per year. And gigawatt hour is just the, the capacity. Right. That's a decent amount of, uh, seems like a decent amount of power. Yeah, that's a pretty, battery. that's a lot of battery capacity. But that's how much they want to pump out. And right now that's more than all of the batteries produced in the world in 2013. Wow. Yeah. I mean, one, uh, for some perspective, uh, a Chevy Volt has a 16 kilowatt hour battery pack. Okay. So you can so do the math, up. Joe. You can, you can, oh, pff, you do the math. <laughs> do it. Um, so you can get, uh, it's a lot of batteries. 1,875,000 batteries. That, wow. That's a lot of okay, batteries. So that is a lot of volts class. So basically that's more than all the batteries produced in the world. Yeah. So just yeah, one just one Tesla battery plant is going to double the the battery production. Yeah, there's nowhere near a million electric cars being produced a year. No. So. 
Yeah. Although you need more than one battery per car, though, too, don't you? Well, I, that we were dividing by one Chevy Volt, right? So, oh, okay. right. An electric car is more than a Chevy Volt battery pack. I'm not sure how much my car has. Okay. But, Something um, like that, though. We're still on the. We're probably in the same order of magnitude. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm pretty sure your car, Joe, actually has a smaller battery because it's a smaller vehicle and the range is just about the same, isn't it? Or no, the no, the my range is about, about 40 mile. Yeah, my range okay. is about double a volt, but it is a smaller car, okay. so it's Fiat probably says yours is 24 kilowatt hours. Okay, there you go. Okay. Yeah. So Not all much. these, all the batteries that we're producing right now use about 45,000 tons of lithium every year, and this new company, Symbol, wants to build a plant to create an additional 15,000 tons. Uh, right now, the, the production has been ramping up very, very significantly. It's like 25% every year it's been going up. Mm. Lithium batteries are just kind of a, a new thing that's been blowing up since right. the 90s. Right? And lithium's used in a lot of other stuff as well. Heck, lithium's used in starting to be used in more aerospace applications too. There's uh, lithium-aluminum alloys yeah. that I think... Most of the you were just talking about the Mitsubishi uh, MRJ. I think yeah. most of the skin of that is a lithium aluminum alloy. It's very really? light. It's those are very light and strong. Interesting. So basically, they want to produce make a significant fraction. They want to increase the lithium world lithium production by a significant fraction. Um, this one company, and they have a a new way to do it. The way we produce lithium right now is by harvesting it from salt flats. It's not mined out of the ground like a like most metals are. So what happens is it's, it gets dissolved in this water, this very salty water with a couple of other materials. Um, there's usually a lot of magnesium, a lot of chlorine, and some other materials in this brine. And so they take, they take it out and they pour it into these very thin pools that they call evaporation ponds. And it's basically just an inch of this salt flat brine. And it's a, spread out over a very wide area so that the sun can evaporate it quickly. And they... It's going to take forever. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> the problem, is that it takes yeah. a huge amount of area. It destroys the in the land around the salt flats, and uh, it takes a very long time to produce any lithium. So they basically yeah. have to take it out of that salt and refine it down to, to commercial-grade or battery-grade lithium. Hmm. Um, about half of the... Lithium in the United States right now comes out of Nevada because they have a lot of salt flats there, but most of it in the world is in Bolivia or South America. I think Chile is the, the number one producer right now, but Bolivia, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, has the largest reserves. <clears throat> and when, when they say reserves, are they talking the same kind of reserves like our helium reserve, or do they just mean that's how much they could make if they set up the mining process? I think they mean that's how much is left in the earth. Okay. So that's the total amount of the reserves. Uh, U.S. Geological Society estimates it at 13 million tons, and another study estimates it around 39 million. So that's really not very much when you consider that um, the total use in 2012 was 150,000 tons, and 45,000 tons of that was just for batteries. Wow. So there's really – that's – getting very close to how much lithium there is on the entire earth all these dang scientists talking about peak lithium it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> the peak earth will just make more gonna, we're gonna build electric cars forever exactly <laughs> conversations uh, from 2060 <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You heard it here first on Laser Podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so I think it's estimated that the the global production of lithium or the global reserves of lithium will be completely gone by about 20, 2100, the year 2100. So you've got about 95 years to, uh, to drive your electric car around and then you have to come up with something else. Oh, 85. Wow. Yeah. It's not 2005 anymore. We are not in high school anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, surely by 2100, we'll have flying cars and infinite nuclear power from micro reactors and uh, we'll live on Mars too. Well, hopefully, because right? we certainly won't have any more lithium. I mean, I don't know about <laughs> you guys, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be dead. <laughs> Dead so, by 2100? What about all of the technology? You'll be alive that's still. True. With, ad, that's with true. advances in medical technology, <laughs> you know, Android arms and, and everything, I, it's not crazy to think I couldn't live to be 200. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah. So it'll still be our problem. <laughs> um, so I guess this, this kind of uh, shows us the, need, the, the real big need for recycling batteries instead of just throwing them in the trash. I suppose that is one advantage over oil. You can... Uh... You can recycle lithium. Yeah, hey, you can't really recycle the oil. Although recycling lithium is still pretty expensive. Um, now, how much of the lithium are they actually able to recover from the batteries? Do you do you have any idea? I have no idea. No, I've never well, I've not looked into that. Because I mean, most recycling processes are far from perfect. You know, it's like paper paper recycling in particular. I, I recall seeing that like not only does it require close to 95% of the energy required to make paper in the fir first place, but it only recovers about 25% of the raw paper that, that you put in anyway. Uh -huh. Aluminum, on the other hand, is totally the opposite. Aluminum, close to 90% close to, uh, of the aluminum in the world today has already been recycled once, and, and it's, the energy cost required to recycle aluminum is something like less than 5% of the original uh, energy cost to fabricated in the first place oh yeah, wow glass glass is pretty good too glass you can just dump into the fire again and remelt it yeah yeah which is i guess what we're doing with most of our glass right <clears throat> yeah yeah glass is super easy to recycle yeah well okay i just pulled it up on wastemanagementworld.com <laughs> they awesome say map. that yeah they say that lithium-ion batteries are 100 percent recyclable but current economics don't recycle it uh, because recycled lithium costs about five times as much as the cheapest brine-based mining process Wow. So it's it's not economical at this point. Um, but if we keep throwing it into landfills, basically eventually we're going to have to mine our landfills for lithium. To get... mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's going to be hard to find. Sounds like there might be a market opportunity 20 years from now for somebody who's just slowly collected all of the waste lithium batteries. Yeah, there might yeah. be. There might yeah, be. Yeah, so I mean, there's all, like you can turn in your batteries to get recycled. So yeah. what are they doing with them? So are you just, should. I don't know. So they just uh, are they just putting them on a shelf until it becomes economically feasible? They to might be honest, be. that's what a lot of cities do with cardboard. Really? There are a lot of cities that even though they collect cardboard, they don't actually recycle it. They just kind of store it. Yeah. Well, they they put it in incinerators or they put it in landfills. They just they don't actually use it for creating more cardboard because huh. the cost associated with recycling cardboard is i guess there's an initial upfront cost that a lot of cities are not willing to bear yeah but, but it's probably a life cycle cost that's lower but the initial upfront cost is just too high hmm. yeah and especially because there's a lot of extra stuff in cardboard that isn't paper i mean you have the the paper and then it's coated with some waterproof coating and then it's got the epoxy to make the uh, corrugation and yeah and all that 
And uh, if it's a pizza box, it's covered in pizza grease, which doesn't right. really... <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't really recycle that. Yeah. So I guess it'll be important in the future for to, uh, to recycle our lithium or come up with something else. Yeah. Maybe hopefully we'll all just have tiny little nuclear reactors. Everybody will get over that fear too. Well, when I was in elementary school, me and my friend decided that we were going to make uh, matter-antimatter reactors and drive cars off of that. Awesome. That, yeah, that should work. That was our plan. I don't see why not. Yep. <laughs> It'll be good. So, oh, I, actually, I didn't talk about the their their new plan, but this company has a, has some technique um, that unfortunately is still like a trade secret, so they don't we don't really know exa- everything about it. But they are able to take they claim to be able to take the brine from uh, geothermal vents, and there's a lot of already geothermal power plants in uh, where is it Northern Europe and. I think there, there's one in California that they have their demo plant at. Right. Yeah, these guys are in Southern mm-hmm. California somewhere. So they, they, these geothermal plants are already taking the brine out of the earth and the heat from that and using that to produce electricity. But then they can uh, piggyback this lithium production plant on that geothermal plant. And because the lithium is already hot, they have an energy savings for getting it out of it. They don't have to nice. heat water, which is a very costly energy costly in general, because um, water has such such a high heat capacity, nice. and uh, yeah, and then they can just they these geothermal plants already pump the water back into the earth when they're done taking the heat out of it. So that's what this uh, this lithium plant piggybacked on the geothermal plant can do. Oh, I love that solution. Yeah, I think it's pretty great. It seems a like a long term plan, a viable I mean, long term plan. One thing it that's makes... interesting is that it mentions that they're they're kind of writing a loophole that exempts. Uh, the geothermal plant from their ability to like the geothermal plant is allowed to just dump this water back into the earth. Yeah. And they have a special exemption for that. And so symbol is kind of just piggybacking on that exemption. Okay. Although that all might change since all of the, uh, concern with fracking lately, Mm -hmm. they might have to have a new geological survey in that area to make sure it's safe to pump it back in. And Hmm. I think we're becoming more conscious of, uh, (laughs) Not only the stuff we take out of the earth, but the, what we pump into it lately. Yeah. yeah. Well, it it is encouraging though that they're coming up with a with a new solution because the more you look into, um, I guess the process of mining and refining, um, it, there's a lot of things that we're still doing that we were doing a hundred years ago. Like we're getting some of these minerals the same way that we were a <laughs> hundred years ago, and you'd think that we'd have a better solution by now, but yeah. I guess the better solution in a lot of these, from you know, from the science fiction standpoint, is just nuclear fusion. You know, let's just make all the chemicals that we need, but we can't really do that right now. Yeah. Well, it really, I mean, it really is nuclear fusion, or even just fission for energy. You know, that is just. Yeah. It's kind of the uh, ideal solution in a lot of people's minds, right? The yeah. harder you, you think would... about it, the more you realize how much how finite everything is on Earth. Yep. I mean, we were just talking about helium and now lithium and. Yep. We're just going to be out of everything. What are we going to do? <laughs> we need to start roping in some asteroids. That's and start right. Mining yeah. those asteroids. In. Talk to Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources yes. about that. Yes. I was actually going to mention on when we were talking about helium, if, if we could go somewhere that has liquid helium to a planet that has liquid helium and just scoop it, scoop some up. Yeah, yeah that might be awesome. Did I go to a sun? Scoop it out of the some... sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's long term. That's going to be what we have to do because it seems like I mean if we're going to be completely out of lithium in a hundred years, 
that's going to really mess with us. Um, if we're completely out of helium, we can't do any of this fancy quantum computing or any of the uh, satellite stuff that we need anyway, since all of that needs cryogenic temperatures. I don't know. I, I imagine that we'll find a different way to make batteries uh, yes. before we have to start worrying about lithium That's true. reserves. Well, I mean, it's only 100 years, though. 100 years is not that long. I mean, 100 Maybe. years ago, we were barely flying airplanes, right? That's so. true. That's true. Okay. I guess uh, it's easy to get impatient with battery technology because lithium-ion technology in our in our minds has been around for a long time. But, but it hasn't really. It hasn't really. You know, it's even, even in cell phones, lithium-ion hasn't been the battery of choice for more than a decade. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've been following because I fly RC airplanes, and when I was in high school, I was using nickel metal hydride batteries because lithiums were just starting to come out, and they were way expensive. Yeah. And now they're super cheap, and that's that's only like ten years ago. Okay. So, the technology is evolving extremely quickly, and as electric cars become more and more popular, more and more research dollars will go will go into battery development. That's true. That's true. So, Although, again, sort of with the we're almost in the same position as we were in the previous story, where you can't, you don't really have that many options, um, because if you're talking about energy density per weight, mm-hmm. lithium is able to store this energy, these ions, but it's the it's the lightest material that you can you can choose. Yeah. So the way the way I see the technology going is, well, I don't know. I think wireless wireless power transmission will become more prevalent. And you could have highways with uh, electric lines running in them, uh-huh. and you can pull electricity wirelessly from the from the road to maybe reduce That's, the need for batteries. But... Right, so you'd only need the batteries. You wouldn't need the range essentially. You would only need the batteries while you're off grid essentially, right? Okay. Yeah, that but makes who knows? sense. Who knows? It's hard to it's hard to say. I, I think we're gonna see uh, we're gonna see ultra capacitors start to replace batteries once once they figure out how to control the discharge of ultracapacitors, they they can store huge amounts of, of potential. It's just a matter of controlling the discharge from them. So you would you would right. kind of like, you know, charge it up very quickly, but then try to discharge it very slowly and it it's kind of like trying to control a fire hydrant. So yeah. I think that's gonna be that that's where I would lean for the future of battery technology is kind of going with a totally different solution and, and not batteries. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. And I think that's what Elon Musk has said about the long-term solution for for Tesla cars too, is that he thinks ultra capacitors are going to be uh, useful. Well, you know, I talk to Elon every couple of weeks, and uh, yeah, he, he agrees with me. He agrees with me. <laughs> okay, this. that's good. You're giving him he all actually, his ideas. He actually funds, yeah. technically speaking. That's why we talk about him so much. Oh, okay. <laughs> back channels, back channels. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. Yeah, regardless of all that, in the short term, we're going to need a lot more lithium. So this, uh, hopefully this symbol plant is able to get their stuff going and uh, get us all electric cars in the in the short term. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems uh, it seems interesting, so hopefully it works out. Yeah, yeah and I mean, it, it's kind of like if, if Elon Musk says, I'm going to spend a bajillion dollars to build this massive ba- battery factory and I will buy lithium from whoever sells it to me, then... It's gonna People happen. are gonna. It's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we don't just use it all up though, and sooner than we expect. Right? Yeah. I'm thinking about buying, going and buying a salt flat. You guys, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a good investment. Yeah. Because I'm looking at the other uh, the other uses for lithium. 
uh, ceramics and glasses is the only thing that's above batteries right now. That's 30% of the lithium is used in ceramics really? and glasses. That's on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> huh. uh, batteries is 27%. Grease is 12 Let's see. Air treatment, polymers, aluminum production, and pharmaceuticals are other uses. Huh. Wonder wonder what is what makes it special about using it in ceramics. Anyway, that's another show. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's that's all we need to talk about for this today. Um, I think this is kind of long. My my Skype timer disappeared for whatever reason. We're, but... we're at about an hour and a half right now on the Skype timer. Okay. Uh, well, that should be pretty good. That's might be a little too much. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you guys for joining me. You're welcome. Thank thanks you. for yeah. thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Why don't you guys tell us about your show? <laughs> All right. So Jacob and I host Technically Speaking, uh, a member of the Braculote Media Network. It's a show about engineering and technology. Talk about engineering technology news, whatever's going on in the engineering technology world. You can find us at uh, www.technicallyspeakingpodcast.com. So yep. And we try to out. find try to find interesting guests that have something to say in in, in the world of engineering. Um, if you've not listened to the show before, we you might have uh, gleaned from this recording that we tend to talk about Elon Musk a lot. So on that note, I would recommend that you listen to the Hyperloop episode because <laughs> we brought oh, yeah. a uh, we brought a tubing engineer on to talk about the tubes that would be involved in the Hyperloop design. Um, but for the most part, we try to you know talk about things that are in engineering and technology in a way that's communicated for everybody, but at the same time is is uh, not you know. Um, lightweight. We're not we're not trying to dumb it down for everybody. We want to give you the real answers. We want to give you uh, as technical as we can, similar to what Cameron does on this show. So if you like this show, I'm sure you'll like Technically Speaking. Absolutely. I listen to your guys' show. I love it. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. I actually I love, really like your uh, the brainstorming sec- section you guys have. Uh, <laughs> oh yes. yeah. That's my favorite part of the show, really. Yeah. We, we try to come up with an interesting brainstorm, and uh, right now all of them are coming from listeners. So that's that's oh, the best cool. part for me. All right. Is that they come, they ask us something to think about, and we try to try to apply our engineering tool set to solve that problem. And when you do it in a formalized way, like engineers do, it, it, you get interesting results. And it it sounds boring, but <laughs> brainstorming isn't just throwing out any idea it's it's thinking about it in a way that's structured and actually gives you a real life answer so yeah. we, we like that i think that first whole first story we talked about was basically a brainstorming session from a uh, big yeah. conference yeah <laughs> a little bit it, it was the the paper seemed to be dated right around the time that the limb program got canceled and and it had a lot of people <laughs> from the companies that were involved so uh, all right so it was they there was their uh i just lost my job what do i do now <laughs> Yeah, looks like. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny thing about that brainstorming segment is we actually had that planned as a segment on our show, something just like it, and it was right before you got your show came out, and then we got rid of it because we didn't want to do the same. <laughs> Beat you to it. I know, right? It's just just by like a month. So. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks again for for coming on the show, guys. And for awesome. listeners, um, if anybody wants to find any of the stories we talked about or any of the links, uh, I think that we have a couple extra links that we weren't originally planned. I'll have everything in the show notes on laserpodcast.com. Um, you can follow this podcast on Twitter. We're at laserpodcast, and you guys are on Twitter too, right? Yes, at techspeakpod. All right. So you should follow both of us, um, and that's it. Have a good night. Bye.
All right. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been Laser. Let's agree science and engineering are rad. Show notes with links to everything we talked about are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email to contact at laserpodcast.com, contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. If you want to help out the podcast, you can tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, or you can use the Amazon affiliate link on our website before you make any Amazon purchases. Thanks to the band Crying for providing our intro music and to The Wild for providing our outro music. rad but yeah, yeah definitely rad and and they Apparently, and since, Tesla's since we were coming out we're uh, talking about uh sorry, sorry. <laughs> i was Go gonna ahead, make an elon musk joke do it oh no, I, yeah So that yeah, thirty million Six, versus sixteen thousand. So thirty million divided by sixteen. Thirty. 000. One, two, three, four, five, six divided by sixteen thousand is one thousand eight hundred seventy-five batteries. That's, That's how many it? they expect to produce in a year. Wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, if it's just for that doesn't seem that's not. No, that batteries. can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hold on, let's do this again. You said thirty gigawatts. Thirty gigawatt hours. And is is giga million? Giga is million. Okay, so thirty. No, giga is oh, billion. Giga, yeah. giga is billion. Okay. Ah, yeah, see, I thought million. so. Uh, giga one, is two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine divided by sixteen thousand is. Yeah, I can't believe yeah. I don't know my orders of magnitude. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't look it up yet, but I was about to. <laughs> you, can, you can edit it all out so it sounds good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some of the uh, nickel super alloys, the very, very high temperature, also use lithium. Hmm. Uh, just to, to get the weight down. Yeah. Nickel super yeah. alloy. Let's see. That's that's like the the materials they use inside the jet engines to. Uh, oh, okay. For really high creep resistance at high temperature. So maybe for the fan blades. Yeah. Since they have so much force on them. Lithium. Although you know what, the Wikipedia page for a nickel super alloy doesn't have lithium on it. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just I'm just making things up over here. That's cool. Sorry, Jacob got disconnected. Oh, yep. Let's see. Add people to this call.
<laughs> oh, uh, there wait. we go. There you All are. right, cool. Somehow I, it, the button changed to join call instead of call group. So okay, well, sorry about that. Whatever. Jacob's internet sucks. It does. I'm. I always have to use my cell phone. I tether through my cell phone to. Oh really? Yes, because my home internet sucks that bad. Wow. Maybe you need some uh, Project Loon internet there. I do. Right. I'd... Or an airship hovering over your uh, <laughs> over your house. I'd hurt somebody to get Project Loon. <laughs> Actually, Google Fiber. That's who I would. Re- I'd really. Oh yeah. Ter- I would do terrible, horrible things to get Google Fiber. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty excited. It looks like Phoenix is one of the uh, oh. the cities they're considering, but. By the time frame is probably by the time I graduate and move away from here. So. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys done a show about them? No. No. Oh, you should. Okay. Collecting an asteroid. Yeah. I know. Actually, I was, I was wondering. Facebook program just added an asteroid redirect mission. That's true. <laughs> they did. <laughs> Anyway, though, or even hmm, regardless, <laughs> yeah, irregardless. <laughs>